0: The following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. All right, go ahead and make your way back to your seats, please. Well... If you don't know me, my name is Sean Farrell, and I serve as the college pastor here at FBC. It's a privilege to open the Word of God with you this morning. I want to tell you the story of two people this morning, a man named Tom Fagan and a woman named Whitney Angler. Both had knee surgery in San Diego. Both were operated on by the same doctor. Both had less than satisfactory results and consequently both pursued a course of legal action against their physician. The first is an older man named Tom Fagan. He had a total knee replacement in 2009 and due to what was termed the carelessness of both surgeon and staff, this very routine surgery ended with an amputation of Mr. Fagan's right leg. He and his lawyers settled out of court for $1.4 million. Second patient was a young lady named Whitney Angler, 15-year-old track athlete who had torn her ACL. After surgery to repair it, her surgeon prescribed a knee wrap with a cooler that pumps continuous ice water around the knee to help with inflammation and pain. This resulted in frostbite on and around the surgical site and subsequently a number of skin grafts were required to fix her skin. Along her, with her lawyer, the jury awarded her just over $12 million. So Tom Fagan loses a leg gets 1.4 million Whitney Angler has a couple of skin grafts gets 12 million So let me ask you the question what made the difference why so high why so low because it seems to me like this should have been reversed right Let me tell you what the difference was they had different they had different lawyers that's right One convinced the patient to settle out of court, the other went to court and pleaded on behalf of the client, and the results speak for themselves. When you get into the courtroom, the skill and expertise of your lawyer is everything. The stronger your defender, the better your chance of winning your case. And this is never more important than in the courtroom of divine justice. Understand that a day is coming when you and I will stand before the judge of the universe to give account for our lives. Acts 17.31 says that God has already chosen that day. That is to say it is already fixed on the divine calendar. Hebrews 9.27 says, says that that day will directly follow the day of our death. It says it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. And on that day, we will enter the divine courtroom, we will stand before the judge, and we will answer for how we lived our lives. Revelation 20, verse 12, tells us that the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, listen, according to their deeds your life, every thought, every word, every action will be scrutinized in the light of the holiness of God. And the judge's decision will determine your eternal destiny. Now, most people do a relatively good job of putting this out of their minds. Distracted by the busyness of life, projects at work, problems at home, responsibility in every conceivable area. Of course, I will deal with God at some point who's foolish enough to die without being ready to meet him. Just don't have time for it right now. I don't have the energy, too many other things going on in my life. I will get to it someday. And oftentimes, the days turn into months, the months turn into years, And for some, even here this morning, longtime church attenders, you deflect the question saying, certainly even this message is for someone else, someone who needs this more. But it doesn't remove the reality that each of us will answer to God, and this is something that you and I must grapple with. There is nothing, there is nothing more important than your immortal soul. Jesus himself said, what does it profit a man to gain the world and yet lose his soul? And so there is no <clears throat> excuse me, no topic more deserving of your attention than the state of your undying soul. And so as we look at this reality this morning, I'd ask you not to tune me out, not to deflect this by saying it applies to someone else, not to justify why this is not for me. My friend, God brought you here this morning. Christian, non-Christian, searching for God, not sure. He brought you here to do business with your heart. And I want to encourage you to engage your mind and open your hearts. The question that we're going to answer is on that day when you enter into the courtroom of divine justice, is there help available? Who will defend you? Will you have to make the case on your own or is there a lawyer or a mediator or some type of advocate that can stand and mount a defense on your behalf? Someone who could stand in the middle and mediate between sinful man and holy God. The Bible tells us and speaks of one such individual. His name is Jesus Christ. And this morning we're just going to look at two verses out of the book of 1 John that address this topic so clearly so concisely, revealing Jesus Christ as our mediator, as our defender, as our advocate. And it is good news. So would you open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. It's one of the last books in your Bible. Go all the way to the right and just back up a couple books. We're going to start by reading this together. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 it says and if anyone sins we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ the righteous and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for those of the whole world walk with me into the divine courtroom and let's examine our situation Point number one in your outlines, you have committed a crime. You have committed a crime. It was just less than a year ago that I fulfilled my civic duty, serving as a juror in the great county of Riverside. Actually, I was an alternate juror, which is the worst position to be in. You go through all the process, only to be said... You're now free to go right when they go to deliberate on the, the judgment. The charge attempted murder. Two friends late one night got into an argument after the consumption of much alcohol and some drugs. And one of them pulled a gun on the other. And in the words of the jury, or not the jury, excuse me, the words of the, um, the prosecuting attorney, fired Point blank, he said, center mass, straight into the other guy's chest. It was really cool. <laughs> the picture that you see uh, on Law & Order or whatever cop show that you all watch and you're committed to watching over and over, CIS, Hawaii, CIS, Chicago, CIS, Marietta, whichever one you're into these days, you all watch these shows. Uh, It's a little different when you walk into a real courtroom and sit down. When there is a real crime and someone's life really does hang in the balance. As I said, the trial I was in was attempted murder. The man who was shot survived and took the witness stand not more than 10 feet away from the defendant, the man who shot him. And I sat there like this. It, it was electrifying. A real person, a real judge, a real legal system that is binding. The only difference here this morning is that it is you that has committed the crime. It is you as the one who is being charged. And what is your crime? Look back at verse 1. It tells us there that the crime is sin. It says, and if anyone sins. And a better translation would be, and since we do sin, or because we sin. What is sin? Very simply, sin is to break God's law. It's to come up short of his perfect standard, to violate his moral perfection. And you and I, we are all guilty. It is not a matter that's up for debate. Romans 3 says that every one of us has sinned. It is ubiquitous. James chapter 2 says that even if we kept God's entire law perfectly, the entire thing perfectly, but then stumble in that one little point, it says, James 2.10, we have become guilty of all. And if you're in 1 John 1 and you look up a couple of verses at chapter 1, verse 8, it says there, if we say that we have no sin, you say right now, I'm not really guilty says that we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. I am a sinner. You are a sinner. Each of us has broken the law of God. We are guilty and we enter the courtroom of divine justice and we are on trial for our own sinful actions. We cannot blame our circumstances or our parents or our friends. You and I are not victims. We cannot say The devil made me do it. It isn't someone else's fault. It wasn't just that once. It's not a result of our upbringing or our education or lack thereof or what side of the tracks we grew up on. Every son and every daughter of Adam has broken the law of God. In Romans 5.12, it says, Just as through one man, speaking of Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Because all have sinned. In layman's terms, our parents are sinners, our children are sinners, and we are sinners. It was just after college that I moved uh, to Poway for about a year and moved in with Tracy's grandparents on the 15th fairway of a golf course. I, by the way, am a terrible golfer. Don't know if you knew that or not. I stopped golfing because I hate it, and I'm really, really, really bad at it. Oh, Sean, you can't be that bad. It's terrible. Anyway, I used to go out when I thought I was going to be a a golfer, and and, uh, as night falls on a golf course, particularly one where there's houses around, uh, everything kind of shuts down and gets really quiet. So you can walk out there in the twilight of the evening. I would drop about 10 balls about 100 yards from the pin, and I would just set up and I'm lefty, and I would swing and just try to, you know, almost like a driving range looking for that shot. One particular evening, I was out there. It was a beautiful night, and I hit a ball, and it sliced so badly, coming this way. It never got more than about 10 feet off the ground. It was more or less a line drive that was going across the fairway and headed straight for the condos on the other side. It hit the sliding glass door, of this condo on a direct contact, direct flight. And that window shook and rattled and the ball was bouncing around the patio every which direction, thundering. It was so loud. The glass didn't break. I think this is normal for them, right? They have special stuff there. Um, But within about 20 seconds, the owner came rushing out. And after kind of examining his door, he turned his attention from the door back to the fairway, and there I was by myself, not another human being in sight, no one to blame it on. I was the only living creature out there, no hiding. I sheepishly put my hand up and yelled out an apology. That's a bee that I just um, touched. Okay, there he goes. (laughs) I sheepishly yelled out an apology, and he quickly said, ah, it's okay, don't worry about it, and went back inside. I took a minute, took a deep breath, gathered myself, dropped another ball, (laughs) swung, sliced the ball going this way, not more than 10 feet off the ground, a line drive. I am not kidding. It hit the exact same sliding door. Uh, The man came out more quickly this time, looked at his door, which still was not broken, looked at me, standing there by myself, yelled out, maybe it's time for you to move on. I gathered my stuff and I sheepishly ran away. I, I think it's a really good picture good illustration of sin perfection would be to stand on the on that 100 yards out drop a ball and put it with one stroke into the hole maybe you could do that one in a thousand or one in 10,000 perfection would be to put it in the hole with one stroke every single time and never miss But we can't do that. No one can. That's the problem of sin. It is the inability for us to meet the perfection of God. It is to fall short of his perfect standard. You know what this is. We make messes of our lives. We strain relationships. We create conflict and difficulty wherever we go. You're committed in your marriage, and yet you find yourself flirting with that person at work or looking at inappropriate things online. You have told yourself a thousand times that you will control your anger and not raise your voice with your kids, only to lose control yet again. You want to say the right things, but find yourself lying, gossiping, cursing, or tearing others down. I stood in the middle of that fairway, alone, exposed, unable to hide, with no one else to blame. It was clear that I was the guilty one, And so, too, you and I stand before God alone, exposed, and unable to hide. He sees every one of our deeds. He hears every word we say. And he knows our most intimate thoughts. We have committed a crime against God himself. And so we enter the court of divine justice. That brings us to our second point. Number two a lawyer is offered to you. A lawyer is offered to you. Look back at the text. It says, and if anyone sins, and we have, look at that next phrase, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Yes, we have sinned, that much is clear, and now there is an advocate mentioned or a lawyer who can help us. But before we meet him, Let me take a minute to introduce you to the other uh, members of this divine court. I'm going to point out four. They're not all in the text, but this is helpful to round out the courtroom motif. First, we look at the defendant. The defendant is the person who's on trial. As we've already established, that is you, that is me. And we already know that each of us is guilty. This isn't a slam-dunk case, It's open and closed. The evidence is stacked against us. For anyone looking into the courtroom, it's obvious that the defendant doesn't stand a chance. That takes us to the next person in the courtroom, the prosecutor. The prosecutor is an attorney who is coming against the defendant to make a case that this person is guilty. Though he's not mentioned in the text, there is a very skilled prosecutor who also knows about our sin and who is eager to force the case against us before the divine judge. His name is Satan. And what he attempts to do is to come to the bar, point to the record of our sins, appeal to the holiness of God, and demand that God exercise justice and banish us to hell. Scripture calls him the dragon, the serpent of old, our adversary, and a murderer. In Revelation 12.10, it says he is a prosecutor who accuses the brethren before our God day and night. 1 Peter 5.8 says that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The picture is that Satan is at the throne of God day and night bringing accusations against us. He is a hateful prosecutor who relentlessly cries out to God that if God is holy and if he is just and if he is righteous, then he must punish those who have such a list of iniquities. This brings us to our next character, our next uh, member of the courtroom, and that is the judge. Look back at verse 1. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with, who does it say? Who? The Father. We have an advocate with the Father. Who is the Father? The Father is the creator of all things. He is the great king and the sovereign ruler over all. Genesis 18 tells us that he is judge of all the earth. Psalm 7 says that as a judge, he is a righteous judge. And this judge does not sit on a bench, but he sits on a great white throne. Scripture teaches us that he is a wise judge, that he is a patient judge, but that he is also a just judge. There is no piece of evidence that is unknown to him, for Hebrews 4 tells us there is no creature hidden from his sight. He looks into the souls of men and sees the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. You may fool your parents. You may deceive your spouse. You may fulfill your sinful fantasies in the dark of night in a place that no one can see. But you cannot deceive God. He knows your most intimate secrets. He sees all and knows all and possesses the power and authority to condemn to hell every sinner who ever lived. That's why Jesus warned in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So here we are in the courtroom, standing before the holy judge. The case has been presented and every sinful act has been cataloged and entered into evidence against you. The charges are clear, the stakes are high. And the prosecutor approaches the bench and ruthlessly pounds the bar, demanding justice, demanding justice. He demands the judge vindicate his own holiness. He calls for a decision. He demands sentencing. Throw the book at them, he says, a punishment that fits the crime. They have offended an infinite and eternal and holy God. Therefore, they must pay an infinite and eternal punishment. Banish them from your presence and damn them to an eternal hell for their crimes. That is justice. And that's what the prosecutor calls for. And so the situation doesn't look very good. But it's at this point that we are introduced to the final character, the mediator. Look back at verse 1. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate or a mediator with the Father That is Jesus Christ, the righteous. That word advocate can be translated mediator, mediator, excuse me, or defender or even lawyer. It is a legal term describing one who comes alongside to help. Verse 2 says that it is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is our defender. He takes up our defense And though our prosecutor is relentless, so also is our defender. Hebrews 9.24 says that Jesus appears in the presence of God for us. Romans 8.34 says it's not just into his presence that he comes, but it says there that he comes to the very right hand of God and he intercedes for us. And it's not just that he intercedes, but Hebrews 7.25 says He always lives to make intercession for us. Satan, the hateful prosecutor, accuses us day and night, but Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, stands to make intercession for us. So how does he defend us? What is the possible defense to a judge who is just and holy? Does he plea bargain? Is he looking for a mistrial on some technicality? Does he claim insanity for all of us? I mean, who would take this case? What what lawyer in the right mind would look at it and say, yeah, I'll volunteer for that one? How can you win? Every individual sin ever committed by every person who has ever lived will be punished. It's a staggering thought. And so in the words of Paul in Romans 3.26, how can God, who is the judge, be both just and the justifier? Or in the words of Spurgeon, how, how can justice and mercy kiss? How can he uphold his justice at the same time justify the ungodly? And the answer is shocking and it's found in verse two. And so let's move on to our final point. Number three, your penalty has been paid. Your penalty has been paid. And this is really good news. Look at the phrase in verse 2. It says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is a big word. I had to look it up. It means to cover or to satisfy or to appease. Concept's pretty straightforward. It has the idea of covering our sin, the idea of paying for our sin. What this verse is telling us is that Jesus Christ himself offers to pay the full price for our sin. He is the propitiation. He is the payment. He is the covering. And so I want you to go back in that courtroom with me and picture the scene Jesus Christ enters the courtroom. Put whatever mental picture you can conjure of this immense, incredible courtroom into your mind. He walks past the guilty sinner who knows their guilt. He walks past the mountain of evidence that is overwhelmingly stacked against the sinner. He walks past the hateful prosecutor who is still breathing out threats against us. And he approaches the bench and he proceeds to present his case. He brings forth his own evidence for the, course, the court's consideration. Exhibit A he places three large, dull, rusty nails on the table. Exhibit B, he presents a crown of thorns still stained with blood. Exhibit C, he reveals a large wooden cross. And then in the silence of the courtroom, he removes his own shirt, revealing numerous scars on his back and his arms, proof of a severe beating. He points to holes in his hands and his feet. He references a wound in his chest where a sword was plunged into his heart. And he says to the judge, yes, they are guilty, but their penalty has already been paid. I paid it all. I drank every last ounce of the cup of wrath. And he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No judgment. They have already been, their penalty's already been paid for. And so the judge Seeing Jesus, who had lived the perfect life, having never sinned, offered his own life on the cross, taking the place of guilty sinners, suffering and dying as the propitiation and payment for our sin, declares that sinner to be innocent. First Peter 2.24 says, And he himself, speaking of Christ, bore our sins, in his body on the cross so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Or 1 Peter 3.18 it says for Christ also died for sins once for all. That's propitiation. The just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God that's Mediation, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. One of my favorite ways to look at this uh, is to picture the Hoover Dam. If you've been there, it's a lot of concrete. It's like 400 feet tall. This thing is massive. And every time I look at something like that, I think, there are people in this world that are much smarter than me. Somebody figured out a way to hold back this amazing amount of water. And you know, it's not just a wall holding back water. It's also generating a ton of electricity so that we can run our lives. It's just, it's amazing. Anyway, if you you could stand at the bottom of that and look up um, at that dam and imagine the picture here is imagine that all the water on the other side of that wall is the judgment of God that has been stored up for you. And while you're alive the mercy and the patience of God is holding back and restraining that judgment. It is as if to say the, the, the dam itself is the hand of God, the patience of God, that is holding back the wrath of God against the sinner who is there guilty and awaiting judgment. Long as there is breath within you, God's judgment is restrained by his mercy. But the day that you die, the mercy of God is removed And the flood of God's judgment and wrath is poured out on the sinner. It is a fire that will consume the adversary. Hebrews 10 says that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus himself stands and places himself between you as the guilty sinner and in the the pathway of the wrath of God. And as it were, the sinner hides behind Christ and his cross while God, removing his mercy, pours out the full, unmitigated wrath of a holy God against his son. In that moment, Jesus takes it all, bears every sin, all of the shame, facing the full wrath of God for you and for me. And from the cross, having drank the cup, he says my favorite words in all the Bible: "It is finished." Definitive, final. It is the last word from the lips of the victorious conqueror. Listen to what the rest of the scripture say: Micah seven eighteen. God will tread under. Uh, excuse me. God will tread our iniquities under His foot. This is because of what Jesus has done that Isaiah 43 says, I will remember your sins no more. Micah 7 says that God will cast them into the depths of the sea. And Psalm 103 says that as far as the the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. In response to this, the hymn writer said, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him. And pardon me. Every sin, past, present, and future has been forgiven. And the father judges his son as if he had lived our sinful life. And when he looks at us, he sees only the perfection of Christ. I had a conversation with a young man not more than a week ago who's struggling with doubt and insecurity in his faith. And I said, what do you think God's main emotion or thought is toward you? And he said, disappointment. Disappointment. And maybe you feel that way this morning. Haven't lived perfectly, keep failing in the same sins. You know what the answer is to what God's disposition is toward you? He sees his son in you. He doesn't look at disappointment. He sees only his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When he looks at you, he sees his son. Not your sin, not your failures, only the perfection of Christ. What is the motive? Why would God do this? Could you just turn over to 1 John 4.10? Uh, just one verse. to see the why. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment, the covering, the appeasement for our sins. So like I said, the judge, seeing the evidence, looks at the guilty sinner and declares him or her to be innocent. The gavel falls once and for all. It's called justification. Declared right completely, totally, eternally, you are free. If I could bring one more thing here. Verse 2 says, it ends by saying, he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world, and there is certainly some theological debate on this part of the verse. We're not going to get deep into it, but, but can I just help you with this for a minute? Um, how are we to understand this? Does the world really mean the whole world? Did Jesus' death actually satisfy God's justice for every sinner who has ever lived? If so, then what is hell? like? How, how do I fit all this in? Can I tell you that the scripture here is not teaching... And telling us that atonement and payment was made for everyone, that would be universalism. Jesus did not pay for the sins of Judas. The Bible says that when Judas committed suicide, that he went to his own place. He didn't pay for the sins of the angry mob that screamed for his blood or the sins of a man like Adolf Hitler. He didn't pay for the sins of the mass of humanity that show up at the great white throne in Revelation chapter 20 and are cast into the lake of fire. Jesus, on the cross, paid the price and atoned for those who would repent and believe. Is the invitation for all and for every? Yea, verily, yes it is. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Jesus offers forgiveness and salvation to all, to anyone who sees their sin, understands their desperate need and comes to Him in humble faith, turns from their sin, submits their life to Christ. His sacrifice is offered for all. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, educated or not, from the right family. It doesn't matter if you grew up in the church or if this is the first time you've ever heard a message about Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what's in your past. Did you hear that? It doesn't matter what's in your past. There is no sin so deep that God's love is not deeper still. The call of Scripture is to lay down your past, the skeletons in your closet, the failure, the regret, the guilt, the shame, the secrets that no one knows about, and come to Christ. He offers to be your mediator and your defender, to stand for you. Through his death, he offers forgiveness to you, to take your sin away, to cleanse you, and give you a clean conscience and to make you new. But it doesn't happen through mere intellectual assent or acknowledgement. It doesn't happen because of who your parents are. It isn't just try a little harder and then God will accept you. No, no, no. This is wholesale surrender. This is full abandonment of your life and offering of yourself wholly to God Trusting that only his finished work, Christ's finished work on the cross, is sufficient to pay for your sins. It was just a little over a week ago, nine days ago, I got a call from an old friend. He grew up Southern Baptist, but turned from that pathway long ago. He is a gay man who has lived without God his entire adult life. And he and I have had many conversations about the gospel in the past. But as he had moved away and gone a different direction of work, I haven't seen him for some time. On this phone call, he said, Sean, I have stage four stomach and liver cancer. I've denied treatment. I was just placed on hospice and I have maybe two weeks to live. I'm calling you as I'm closing up my affairs to say goodbye. Surprised and shocked, I I thanked him for the call. You don't always get to say goodbye to people, and I told him it meant a lot to me that he chose to call me. I proceeded in that phone call to share Christ with him. After a very brief gospel presentation, he quickly said, thank you, but you know what? I don't want to talk about it. all ended quickly thereafter. and yet I couldn't get him out of my mind uh, for a few days as I prayed and I told him I prayed for him for an easy passing but also that God would change his heart. I, I finally got to a point a couple days ago a few days actually earlier this earlier last week I wrote him a letter in which using the exact same imagery as this message, I begged him with all the grace I could muster not to enter into the divine courtroom on his own. I told him, your court date is set. You're gonna stand before God. You are gonna stand before God in less than two weeks. Don't try to mount a defense on your own based on being a good person based on the works that you've done. It won't work. You are too guilty. God is too holy. Why would you do that when there's a mediator? One who will stand for you, who will take your place and bear your punishment so that you can be free. He never responded to that. I didn't expect him to. But I'm praying that he in his last days would give his life to Christ. Friend, the stakes are high. What about you? What about you? Crime has been committed. Someone must pay the penalty. In the courtroom of divine justice, who will stand for you? Right now, your idea of saying, I think I'm a pretty good person, I've done pretty good things in my life, taking care of my family, I even go to church. That's you saying, oh, I'll act as my own counsel. That's your defense. Your defense before God is: I think that this pile of goodness over here is more than this pile of sin over here, and think you should let me in to heaven. It's not gonna work. There is a sentence that hangs over your head. Payment will be drawn from the sinner. And friend, you need a mediator. You need an advocate. You need someone who will stand for you with a better defense. Would you come to Jesus today to find forgiveness and find rest for your soul? You might be 15 years old. This is a heavy message. We're talking about your soul in eternity. It's not about tomorrow, not when you grow up. This is about today. The grace of God is open. The sun is shining There's opportunity. Embrace the one who died in your place, paid your debt, satisfied God's wrath on the cross, turn to Jesus Christ and find forgiveness. This is the message of Christianity and it is good news. Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Watch this, therefore, let us Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For those who are in Christ, we celebrate that we have a worthy mediator. If you are struggling with doubt, if you're looking at your past week, day, month, having wandered, maybe this morning your heart has grown a bit cold, Your mediator is standing even now, defending you before the Father. And when the Father looks at you, he sees only the perfection of his Son. Let go of your sin and praise the God who forgives you. And offer yourself again as a living sacrifice in an act of thanksgiving and of worship. Father, we are so thankful. We are so thankful for the goodness and grace that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. We recognize that we deserve nothing but wrath and judgment. We understand that there is a sentence against us and that we cannot, we cannot do it on our own. And so, Father, this morning, we just say thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for your love. We recognize that even in our greatest sin, that your mercy is more. And so we give you our praise. For those whose hearts are being drawn, Lord Jesus, would you bring them to yourself? Today is the day of salvation. Would you cleanse the guilty and give them forgiveness? We praise you for your mercy and your grace. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.